0: Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival.
1: Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Heather Parry and I am truly thrilled to be coming to you today from our Purple Spilt studios in the Assembly Rooms in Edinburgh. And I'm even more excited to be speaking to Scotland's own Kirsten Innes. Kirsten, how are you? Hi, I'm well, thank you. (laughs) Where are you coming from today? Uh, Loch Winnock
0: in Renfrewshire. Um, Not too far away, but about a a two hour drive.
1: Well, we can't have you right next to me, but this is, I think, just a little bit different. (laughs) I'm really excited today to be talking about one of the most hugely anticipated Scottish novels of this year, the fantastic Scabby Queen. Uh, Many of you might know Kirsten from her first book, the Not the Booker Prize winning um, fishnet in 2015 and if you loved fishnet you will undoubtedly love scabby queen it's a big brash unapologetic novel which has already wormed its way into people's hearts with this beautiful you know unapologetic cleo campbell um so what we're going to do today kirsten's going to start us off with a wee bit of a reading to introduce the book uh we're going to have a little bit of a chat about several things and then at the end we're going to have about 15 minutes for audience q a uh, but Kirsten, do you want to start us off?
0: Sure. Um, start at the, the very beginning, as Friendline Maria once said. So um, Scabby Queen is made up of um, point of view sections from certain narrators, but also media uh, commenting on the life of my protagonist. So we start right at the beginning with um, Q Magazine, June 1990, Ginger Nut. Pete Moss sets to with Pop's newest egg girl. Tea time telly was changed forever one Thursday evening in March this year. Dads all over the country froze, forkfuls of egg and chips halfway to their mouths. Mothers tutted and turned their heads away, scraped plates jealously. And the kids pressed up against the screens. Well, they'd never seen anything like it. A young woman defying those stodgy top of the Pop's conventions, unbuttoning her waistcoat to display a curb-stretched anti-Poltax slogan T-shirt underneath. Cleo Campbell has an effect on people. Everyone pauses to look at her as she walks into this bog-standard London boozer at lunchtime in her lipstick short skirt and casually scuffed Doc Martin boots. Their eyes are drawn by that shocker red hair, held by the fierce, piercing beauty in her gaze. They know her. They recognise her, they point, and she smiles at them, gently, accepting this newfound level of fame. Her eyes meet mine and she poses the question, unspoken, are you? I'm not? It's me. She folds her legs delicately into the chair opposite and flashes me a big, bold grin. Fancy a pint? She says. Campbell is, demonstrably, Scottish. With her head of scorched girls, her milky skin and her honey love tin accent, she seems to have walked straight off the set of Highlander. She likes to keep her origins a mystery. Ugh, oh, I grew up in a tiny wee place, she never have heard of it, she says when I press her. But she will admit to a musical apprenticeship around the folk music clubs and dance halls of the Scottish islands. When she entered the pop pantheon earlier this year with the insanely catchy anti-Poltax stomp Rise Up, There were those questioning whether a 22-year-old girl could possibly have written so musically complex a song herself. Answer, yes, she could and did. Her father, she tells me, is a well-known frontman on the folk music scene and it's clear she must have inherited from him that swaggering charisma that borders on magnetic. Her godfather is the session musician Donald Bain, a trusty pair of hands on any album and the man she credits with her musical education. But Cleo Campbell belongs firmly in the here and now not hidden among the beards and jumpers at the back of a dusty old folk music club. Rise Up caught the mood of a nation, charting at number two and dancing angrily in and out of the top 40 ever since. But Campbell's Rise to Stardom was not the conventional one. She had written the song to be sung by the masses at anti tax meetings in Glasgow. She began to put, perform it on stage at rallies and as her stages got ever bigger, she was spotted and brought down to the big smoke. <laughs> like a, a tractor beam pulling me here, like I'm a, an astronaut traveling so far from my native habitat. I don't know if I'll be the same again when I go back. Maybe I'll just stay here floating in space, eh? She's here for good now. It seems EMI signed her up for a three album deal and she's spent the month since rising up, working on new material. Her next single, can't, won't, nods again towards the still brewing political debate that made her name, But lyrics are tamer. Dare I say, I ask, that it lacks rise-ups, But, I the record company asked me to slow down a bit, not my choice straight enough. They said they wanted me to focus on the music for this one. If I keep making the chins, I'll still have chances like this to make sure the issues I care about are getting hurt anyway. She sets down a pint of snake bite, the glass rimmed with red lip prints, and fixes those eyes on mine. Then in that chiming, soaring voice, she lists off a things, a series of things that worry her about the way the country is being run the government chief amongst them, with the truly earnest passion only a young, beautiful woman can get away with. I could listen to her all day. Cleo Campbell, it seems, is ready to fight.
1: Thank you so much, Kirsten. You, you really brought the impact of the start of the book. Um, and as you actually say that yourself, it seems as if Cleo Campbell has walked off the set of Highlander or you know, a film that we all know and love. She. Already feels so familiar to us, even at the start of the book. So, who is Cleo Campbell? How did she arrive fully formed at the start of this book, and is she inspired by anyone?
0: Oh no, for a start, <laughs> <clears throat> there were certain um, there were certain um, kind of pop um, musicians that I looked at to get an idea of what she would dress like, um, what she would wear. Um, but she's she's very much her own person. So I've um her story is told by I think over 20. I should really know this number. I should really know how many actual narrators I've got in this blooming book. Um her story is told by I think over, over 20 narrators um from different points of view. And um it was my idea that you would maybe never really get to hear from her. So it's kind of like a, a 360 mirror, but you the, the narrative never goes inside her head um specifically. Um in terms of being modeled on people, um, the one that I've mentioned a couple of times as having had quite a bit of an influence um, was Carrie Fisher. And that's a bit of a strange one in, at first because Carrie Fisher is not Scottish, not a pop star, not um, not anything. But um, I was kind of thinking, I was sort of formulating this book throughout 2016 and a lot of 2016 into this book, even though I don't think there's actually a single section set in 2016 in the book, um, and um, that was the year that all the celebrities were were dying. It was it, it was kind of like it started with David Bowie, and then you know Alan Rickman, Prince, um, and right at the end was Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds within two days of each other. And Carrie Fisher had been very very visible that year. She'd um, she'd been all over the place. The the new Star Wars film had come out, and um, she was getting a lot of abuse online um, from for not dare, for daring to be a 60 year old woman and not be 19 year old princess Leia in the metal bikini again and um, she'd also published that book um, about Harrison Ford and her relationship she was she was just everywhere she was on Twitter she was being angry about Trump she was she was screaming on, on Twitter at Trump supporters at Republicans she had a lot of anger she had a lot of voice and she was being mocked for it and then she died. Um, sort of right in the middle of this gigantic well right at the end of this gigantic year of hers she died and um, immediately you know it was as though nobody had ever said anything negative about her she was she was being sainted she was um, you know there were just all these glowing tributes to her and it really got me thinking that we really do prefer our female celebrities to be either young and pretty or dead certainly not aging and outspoken um, and that was kind of a big driving force when I came to, to write Cleo. That was the reason that I decided that she maybe needed to be certainly nowhere near Carrie Fisher, levels of famous, but 90s one hit wonder, level of famous. Um, so yeah, that that kind of fed, fed in a bit. I've gone on for a really long time now, Heather.
1: You have a week. Um, no, that's really fascinating. And I really wouldn't have th- thought of Carrie Fisher, but now you say it, it seems actually perfect. The character I had in my head throughout this was um, Amy Winehouse, especially when you bring in the tabloids and how she was treated by the media and you know someone who had such talent and such drive but was taken sort of out of herself and a character was created around her. Mm -hmm. But you empower Cleo in how you write about her in this book so I'd love to talk a bit about your choices around the female protagonist as someone who is essentially silent. Like We do hear a voice through people's memories, but she, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she dies at the very beginning of the book. So we, don't, we meet Cleo when she's already passed on. And as you say, this is a, an epistolary novel, so it's told through articles, it's told through people's memories. Was there any point of view where, was there any point in the writing pro- process where you had Cleo as the active voice, or was she always absent at the heart of the novel?
0: She's always been absent. That was, that was very much my idea um, that I I was interested in. And again, this was another post Carrie Fisher thing um, where somebody that famous dies and people react because emotionally, because they felt that they knew her. Um, So this, this was kind of my idea. I was, I was interested in how you can never really know another person. And each of the narrators in the book thinks that they have the measure of Cleo. Um, But I specifically kind of set it up so that there would be several different kind of differing points of view on what she was on who she was at any given point because that's real life um so it's very much a a a novel about um well it's very much a novel about an awful lot of things actually so I don't want to make a sweeping statement here but it's very much a novel about um how you can't ever really know somebody else um you know to, to that extent to that degree and so it was important for me that you didn't hear directly from Cleo at that point. I've given her some some longer speeches within people's memories at various points just because she wouldn't shut up. But, um, yeah.
1: Do you know her as as the author? Did you sketch out who Cleo was going to be in her whole life story? Because the novel, it's uh, non-linear, so it goes between the different stages of her life and we are given her character and her history in you know threads that are pulled here and there, and then we leave them and we come back. Did you have like a full profile of who she was and what her life was, or did she get put together in the same way?
0: She, she got put together in the same way. She was, um,
1: I had an idea
0: of who she would be. I started off with, um, I heard about um, a person who took their own life, um, who I'd, I'd sort of known vaguely and they'd left their body for their flatmate to find and this was this was the the kind of this is the nub for me I couldn't get over that particular I, I I couldn't work out what sort of state you'd have to be in to do that what kind of it just the an act of absolute selfishness like that and you know what sort of person would be interested in you know what sort of person would kind of bring themselves to that 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 point and then that obviously suggested a relationship with um the person who finds the body which was Ruth who was the who's the the first narrator that we hear from as she finds Cleo's body right right at the start of the book um and um yeah so I I'd, I'd kind of I'd kind of started off with this idea and I was sort of working out who this person would be um but I wrote this book very much as a patchwork I wrote it around um IVF a pregnancy, having a baby who grew into a toddler, and then a second pregnancy, um, and also working. Um, so the the, the structure kind of evolved. I'm I'm still amazed it all makes sense and all together, to be honest. Um <laughs> it suited me to do these short bursts. And anytime I got an idea for a character's voice, I needed to kind of if I wanted to investigate them, I needed to find some way of working them into Cleo's world. And whoever they were would then inform other aspects of what Cleo could have done but once I'd worked out there were certain events I always once I worked out that she was going to be a she was going to have had a, a pop hit in her early 20s at the poll tax around about poll tax riots and protests that um that immediately set a kind of a chronology in place a timeline in place um so I, I was kind of working out what other political events she would have lived through. Because as well as being a pop singer, she's also a, an activist. And um so I was kind of interested in what her reactions would have been to each of these events, you know, how somebody who kind of grew up on the, the minor strikes and the poll tax protests would react to something as kind of corporate and bland as make poverty history in the in the noughties, for example, um especially if they're kind of in their late 30s and feeling a bit jaded by that point. Um, so yeah, it, it it all just kind of grew. I did have to have an awful lot of charts and kind of uh, timelines and there were, there was an awful lot of maths trying to work out um, how old she would have been and what she would have been doing at this point and could I get her to these different places. But she just sort of evolved from these cues, I guess. Yeah. Um, oh, it was also for the, the kind of the structure of the book to work, it was also important for me that she would be somebody who would have very, very intense Short-term relationships that would always blow up. Um, so there aren't very many people in her life who are in her life all the way through. There's maybe one, one and a half. Um, it's it's kind of narrators from different points in her life that that kind of provide the the spectrum. Her.
1: I my <laughs> my immediate thought when you said 2016 was well, how did you decide when to finish Cleo's reactions to the politics of the time because quite a few things have happened between 2016 and 2020. So when did you decide to end her life when it did?
0: I wrote all of the book in 2017, um, almost all of it, I, I, well, and half of it in 2018 as well. So. Um, I didn't want to go too far into the future correctly. That was a correct instinct, as it turns out. There are two sections set in 2020 um, that um, I, I was really worried about. Um, one of them involves somebody over the age of 70 being outdoors. So I, was, I was, wasn't was sure if that was gonna be possible or not. Um, but yeah, uh, it just seemed to, I needed it to kind of have followed through. Um, I think kind of one of the final straws for Cleo was the the Brexit vote. Um, even though it takes her a couple of years to kind of work up to that, I think that was kind of the last the last big defeat for her, I guess. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I um, it, it just it just seems to make sense. So I was kind of future casting a bit for for some of the book. Um, I'm just really glad really really glad I decided not to future cast (laughs) into the future um but yeah it's um yeah that's yeah that Brexit needed to be kind of in there and a lot of the reason the book became so political was um kind of my way of reacting to what I felt as this kind of hardening in the world in 2016, I just had a baby, I was dealing with a bit of postnatal depression, there was a Brexit vote, there was Trump there, it just seemed like, it seemed like a very negative place to be, it seemed like we were walking, and we are, I still think, walking back on a lot of the kind of hard fought for human rights and um, movements towards equality, it was, it was a very bleak place um and um, yeah I think the um that that was sort of that was kind of what informed the <laughs> Cleo's kind of spirit in the in the book um at certain points for sure.
1: What brought you to begin or put her story really beginning with the poll tax um riots was that something did you feel that that was a time when we shifted as a so- society into something that could be a more progressive place or what was it about that particular event? Um well, to be honest, it's actually one of the um one of the earliest
0: big political movements that I remember. I was I was nine and ten when all that was happening. And it was the first time um I was brought up in a very left wing household and taken on demonstrations, but it was the first time I understood um, you know, that there were kind of fundamental injustices in the world. I, I kind of I remember something clicking into place. So it seemed to be a, a good kind of point for Cleo to, to start from as well. And I was just I was just really interested in um the way that protest has changed, activism has changed since that, which could be kind of the last big is it the last big sort of success of a, a working class movement? Um really. And um, in, in, in terms of, you know, a, a working class, progressive left wing movement. Um, yeah, that that it, it, it seemed there seemed to be something kind of fundamental about it that just sort of drew me to to that point. So, yeah.
1: Um, activism generally is like a really strong theme in the book. And you talk not only about individual activists, but about activists, communities and what happens to them and how they um, flounder in a lot of ways in the face of hostility from society from the state from the police um, can you talk a little bit about that and what brought you to write about that so strongly in the book
0: um uh, so there's a there's a whole section of the book that happens in the mid 90s um, mostly set around a squat in Brixton um, and I think that's probably the, the main bit you're kind of referring to there um I was I was down in Brixton um and I stayed there for a week just to do a wee bit of writing I was down promoting my my first book and doing some readings at the Brixton Book Jam and a few book signings and things and um I stayed there for a week I just had a wee room that I'd found on Airbnb in a boarding house and um there was a guy I met in a pub one night um who was telling me all about um all about the the kind of the history of um Activism in Brixton, and that he'd lived in this in this squat just up the road, and um, you know, I, I couldn't. His voice kind of stayed in my head a wee bit. I think he probably was quite influential for the character Spider. Um, and then the more I looked into it, it seemed as though, um, you know, I was I was I was kind of un- uncovering the the um, the history of Brixton squats. He he had a website um, with a few kind of first person. Um, kind of memories of these of these squatting places, and there was this center called the One Two One Center, which was kind of um, which Sammy in the book she works as a well not officially a waitress because they wouldn't um, but she she serves the food sometimes there and hangs out there and and works there and um, yeah this center called the One Two One Center was um, it was originally One Two One Railstone Road, which was squatted by a black woman Olive Morris in the in the seventies. And that her kind of original scouting of this space had kind of been written out a little bit of um, of uh, the the way the kind of very largely white activist groups seem to talk about this this area. Um so that, that was a really, that was a thing I wanted to kind of look at in some way. I was trying to, at some point, I wanted to make Olive Morris a character in the book, but I couldn't make the timelines work out. Cleo would have been a kid. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so the, there was, there was that kind of um, idea, but also I was reading um, the, um, the the Guardian stories Um it was kind of, it came known as the, the spy cop case. Um, the, there were a lot of stories published in the Guardian and um, a book had come out and I was reading that on the train down when I went down to Brixton. Um, so the two things just kind of married up in my head. So the spy cop case, I'm sure everybody will have heard of it, but it was, um, It was many cases. In fact, it was uh, discovered in the kind of noughties that um, uh, for decades, um, the um, Scotland Yard had been sending undercover policemen to infiltrate activist groups, um, usually usually left-wing activist groups or the right-wing activist groups as well. And the ways that they did this, they almost had a rule book where they would take the kind of the identities of dead children and kind of apply use those birth certificates to apply for passports um they had to find children who had died on the on or around their own birthdays who had names similar to them and then the main thing they were encouraged to do was set up relationships with women within activist circles um in order to gain credibility and um a number of these people fathered children with these women without them knowing and i again i couldn't move past that and it just seemed to be it was yeah it it was a pretty appalling thing so I really felt like I wanted to write something about that as well Um, and because I was down in Brixton at the time that I was reading that book and this was all coming together that's sort of how that section of the book formed.
1: There were several points in the book what I felt Um, As a slightly older woman, I'm going to say, I felt so protective of the especially really young women in the book. um, Sammy, especially. And Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the (laughs) sections that made me want to grab her as a character and Cleo as well. And just hold them so tight and be like, oh, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Um, I wanted to talk about feminine working class solidarity in the Mm -hmm. book. Um, Anyone who's been following you on social media will know everyone has loved one passage in particular um and before we discuss it i think you're going to give us a little bit of a reading
0: yeah yeah i should have i'll just check that i can
1: find it um there we go go.
0: this is cleo's voice this is actually a big section of cleo's voice um it is as part of sammy's memory but i don't yeah it's just kind of here um listen let me tell you something In the time where I grew up, the women were glamorous. I'd watch my mum getting ready for a night out at the Labour Club, the same place she went to every Saturday night, sat in the same seats in the lounge, drank the same gin out the same glass, probably. And she treated it like, I don't know, the Oscars or something, mate. I'd watch her pile in blue eyeshadow shadow up to her brows doing that Liz Taylor sweep with a pencil all the way around. She'd have the rollers in for four hours before she went out. She'd spot clean her best suit or her old dress and have it hanging up in the kitchen by the kettle. She made up her face like it was an art. And my stepdad, he'd put his suit on and a fresh tie offer her his arm and they'd step out into the street. With all the neighbours they saw every day for work or at the shops, all of them Done. All of them with that Saturday night sparkle on, like it would be a dishonour to step out without it, like it was church or something, and the labour club, that same old building with its tired walls and the haze of fag smoke, that would become somewhere else. Just with one wee tinsel curtain hanging over the stage, the sparkly bow tie on the old boy who sang Sinatra well into his 70s. I'd be allowed to go along, stay up too late, bag of crisps and a bottle of ginger, forming a gang who crawled under the tables with all the other reins. I'd sit there watching the women's faces, the laughs they put on, the shimmering rainbows around their eyes, mysterious streaks of dark stuff cutting through their cheeks. And I'd understand they were all cast in a spell. They were all by the power of these potions, by mutual agreement transforming this place, where people worked hard jobs for never enough money, where every choice was difficult, where everything was functional and ugly, into Hollywood or Las Vegas, some projection of what they'd seen in the movies. Where the same old spouse she woke to every morning was suddenly Lee Majors or Farrah Fawcett, where you lived next door to Burton and Taylor, where old Archie from up the loan really was a member of the Rat Pack, where money didn't have to matter just this once, and it could only be sustained if everyone kept buying into it together. Oh my God, when there was a wedding. Doreen, who did the hair, was booked out from 6am and there were always some fancy ones who'd get the train through to air for it, make the journey back with these beehives and sculptures poking out over the tops of their coats. What my mother taught me was that you always looked your best. It was a matter of honour with her. You let it all go, you might as well shout to the world that things are sliding, that you're not coping. It lets the rest of the team down when they're dealing with things just as hard and worse. She never let anyone outside of me and my stepdad see her in her house coat. I hardly ever saw her without her makeup the whole time I was growing up with her. It's a working-class thing, this. You don't get to tell a working-class woman that her lipstick is me feminist because it's a signal of solidarity. This is a great big slash of solidarity I'm wearing across my face right now.
1: Thank you so much, Kirsten. That really is, um, I think for me, the beating heart of the book. Um, and like you say, it's one of the few times we hear from Cleo directly, and we hear the full force of her personality and her beliefs and everything that shaped her really on the page for the first time. Um, how much of that is based on your experience personally? Not,
0: um, not much. Um, not, not that much. Um, the, the idea of um, uh, working class glamour and that sort of the lipstick is a kind of a sign of solidarity um it kind of it was my pal katrina who pointed it out to me that um she put me in touch with it she kind of pointed me to this um this woman doing a talk about it online um but it just clicked into um my well my my in-laws to be honest um they are the most phenomenally Phenomenally glamorous women. You too, Irene. I know you're watching. Hiya. Um, <laughs> uh, my my in-laws are rhinestone-studded for every family occasion, and um, they are brilliant with it. And it's it's it really is all about that amazing sort of solidarity that kind of happens between them. And it just seemed to just something kind of clunk clicked into place with me about the lipstick and the politics, the politicalness of or otherwise of lipstick, where. Women um who wear makeup, who wear a lot of makeup, um have kind of been in activist circles can be sort of dismissed, um, you know, as, as I mean that that's what happens in the next passage of the book actually. It goes into an argument in the squat in Brixton about whether or not it's um whether or not wearing lipstick is, is unfeminist, whether or not wearing makeup is unfeminist. Um and um yeah, it just that was where I got the idea for Cleo um this passage just kind of roared out of me um I'm regretting it now because my god I have read that an awful lot in the last two weeks (laughs) um but um yeah it that passage really just kind of roared out of me and that was when I finally understood who Cleo was um I will say though she does talk a great game about solidarity but actually in that section she is also sleeping with the boyfriend of um one of her fellow activists in the and um you know making that person quite uncomfortable at the same time um cleo is the sort of person who will have an idea and convince herself of it and she's so charismatic and she's so um passionate and driven that she can convince herself that that idea has always been her philosophy and is integral to her sense of self um there are various times when um, various things that Cleo has said are kind of contradicted by other characters throughout the book. And um, she tells various people different stories about who her father is, for example, or what her father was, or who was the the influence on her in her life. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: That brings me to the question around complex women. Mm-hmm. I hate to use the phrase unlikable women because I don't think Cleo is unlikable, but. She's certainly complex, and like you said, she does things in the novel that um, aren't what you would expect of a good friend to her friends. She um, goes to one of her activist pals, Xantha, basically just to berate her for not being as dedicated to the cause as she is. Um, so why does this feel so revolutionary? Why does having a female character who can be loving and selfish and stubborn and giving, why does this feel like a revolutionary thing? Do you think we're discouraged from writing these women?
0: Mm, I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean,
1: I've there. There
0: have been a few kind of um, people on on Twitter and on Goodreads and things, are getting in touch, making a point to tell me that they did not like Cleo and therefore the book was a a bust for them. So um, I don't know. I'm not. I, I, I've never felt the need to have a likable. Protagonist, because every whenever I try and write a character, and that this goes for all my characters, I'm not even the tiny ones. There are maybe a couple in there who I don't ever let evolve much out of cliche. But um, that would be the the music journalist who you hear from quite a lot um, at the at the start, who I read at the start of the book. There, I don't think he's necessarily three dimensional, (laughs) but um, it's really important for me for most of my characters, particularly the unlikable ones, to feel like real people um that's something that always pulls me out of a book I I hope I've managed that because that's something that always pulls me out of a book if you know if if something about a character clanks and real people aren't likable all the time real women aren't likable all the time it it does us a disservice to suggest that we are um and you know I I don't know I I, I don't I I don't think I, I don't think people read fiction just to discover lovely other people in, in other worlds. I, or maybe some people do and some people don't. I don't know. Um yeah, I've I've always enjoyed a spiky, difficult female protagonist. And also, I mean, I I know you'll be kind of thinking this as well, but this is never, ever, ever a question that comes up about male protagonists. Male protagonists never have to be likable. Um I have stopped reading some books because they had male protagonists who were absolute, I'm not going to swear because I think my kids might be watching. Um, but um, yeah, uh, it's it's not a, yeah, it, 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 it's just more interesting. It's more interesting to write about somebody who is that complex, who can be wonderful and passionate and also a total bitch sometimes um, because that's realistic.
1: I think it is something that can plague, especially female writers, because like you said, people will get in touch to tell you that they don't like women. Whereas I don't imagine anyone was getting in touch with Brett Easton Ellis to tell them they thought Patrick Bateman wasn't perhaps the nicest man ever. (laughs) Um, I think because your book does these things and it engages with these issues, it feels like a rejection of um, feminism that isn't working for people. So the idea that femininity itself is a bad thing is something that we've moved away from, you know, from like second, third wave feminism. And the lipstick part speaks so well to that. And also, the book is, I think, aiming towards an intersectionality. Is that something you've you uh, brought from the start of the process?
0: Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, I wanted to, um, yeah, I, just the worlds that Cleo was gonna move in, they weren't gonna be all white, they weren't gonna be all straight, they weren't gonna be all Scottish, they weren't gonna, it, it felt really important to me, to try and have as many, uh, as much of a rounded worldview as possible. I mean, she lived much of her life in London, much of her life in, in Scotland, zoomed all over the places whenever she could afford it to kind of protests and, and and that sort of thing. And it just it just all seemed to to come together. I didn't set out to have a checklist. It just. I had ideas for people who Cleo might have met, or I had ideas for people who I glimpsed in the streets who I've kind of turned into characters. I'm really creepy for doing that. I'm really. It, it's been a really good thing for people in the world that I haven't been able to live, leave my little village for a while because I'm always ogling folk on public transport. But, um, yeah, intersectionality was very much important to me. And also in terms of um, feminism, and it is definitely a feminist novel, I'm... Um, I don't necessarily know that Cleo herself is entirely feminist all the time, though she would say she was. Um, but I did sort of notice, I kind of, it didn't seem to feel like it was making sense to necessarily bring her in um, as a feminist activist as such. The, the the causes that she gets involved with, with the exception of the um, the undercover police officer who she she becomes very very passionately involved in, in bringing to to justice to the kind of to the detriment of other people involved in that case in fact um she's not a she's not a feminist activist she's a she's um she comes from a kind of i mean she's she's forged in the minor strikes um as a teenager she's forged in the minors strikes and the poll tax riots and I think she would probably say that she was a working class or um, you know, a, that she lives in solidarity, I guess, I think would be would be the way she'd put it. Um, I was also very interested in the way that women are kind of marginalized within left wing movements as well. Um, there was a scene, I think there was a bit of scene that got cut where um, Cleo uh, during uh, sort of 1989, she's living in Linwood with um, uh, a very charismatic a socialist politician um who is leading the anti tax movements there and um he has kind of meetings with the militant round at his house and Cleo's always asked to get him cups of juice or your dog gets a light that sort of thing and is kind of treated as the the waitress um I don't know if that made it into the book actually but yeah I think that was kind of that was where she came from um and also she's not she's not university educated she's not um she's kind of made up her own philosophy as she goes um her politics aren't book learned in a way and so she she just kind of very much takes people as she finds them I think um so that just seemed to inform the people who would be commenting on her and the people she would be attracted to and the people she would kind of pursue friendships and relationships with does that make sense
1: yeah. It does, yeah. And I think one of the strengths of Cleo is that you see her fail yeah. as well as succeed. Um, there's one amazing part where you write about a gig she has in Ullapool and the disaster that is that. And you just feel for her so much. But it also it brings me to be more um, forgiving of myself as I go along, because we're, I think we're all like Cleo in a way. We're all trying to forge our way through whether we went to university or not, whether we came from political families we're all just coming to this place where we're trying to learn from other people around us and we need to have the bravery to fail as well as succeed. Um, I think that's why people are calling this a state of the nation novel, Kirsten. How do you feel (laughs) with that as a label? Um, Yeah, that
0: was not something I had heard or thought of until um, the the bookseller did a, a piece about the, my publisher's signing the book so that that was that was fun um yeah state of the nation yes it's um well i mean it, it goes through a lot of very very big real life events it goes from you know there's the miners' strikes there's the the poll tax there's um you know make uh, poverty history it goes all the way up through um the independence referendum to brexit um yes it does um what it comes down to always for me though is it's it's also um I mean I guess yeah the personal is political. It's always about the um the little tiny interactions between people and about empathy and failures and successes of empathy between people and those are the things that kind of I mean I don't want to again I'm not a fan of a sweeping statement so I don't want to say all oh, politics is empathy or a lack of empathy. But I think it's incredibly important. Um and um that's really what I'm what I'm interested in is those tiny little moments between two people moments of connection or disconnection um and what people are are thinking of um and yeah so I started at that kind of micro level and just kind of then realized I was writing about left-wing politics and I was writing about an activist and that's where she kind of came from in a way and that that's sort of so it, it started with that micro thing so for me state of the nation is lovely it's not something i set out to write i didn't sit down at my laptop the first day i had child care <laughs> and then go right today I, I didn't type state of the nation novel kirsten in this it wasn't that, that that it all came afterwards um it was always like i said it started off with that idea of that single selfish act and then grew out of all these tiny little interactions
1: um we've only got a probably one question left before we move to um, audience questions but I did want to ask you because this novel is so much about reactions to things going on right now have you been writing during lockdown or is that a wild question to ask someone um I
0: I have two children under five who have been in the house all the time uh writing has been incredibly difficult um I've also kind of to write I kind of feel like I need space I need a big amount of headspace and um, I haven't locked down the pandemic the the continual updating of the news hasn't really provided that I did just write a short story um, which is for a book called Scotland after the virus which will be coming out next year it's a kind of a a story collection story anthology and I I I started off with an idea and then I realised that my brain was so twitter um, that I I was thinking in these tiny little snatches um, and so I've I've written quite an experimental story about somebody trying to think their way through um, the news and the pandemic and how you would build a future society Um, so yeah it's been interesting from an experimental point of view I've been shunting words all the way around the page and and that sort of thing. But that's, yeah, lockdown lockdown has been has been difficult. I was working on an apocalypse novel before all this started, um, but I think I might pause that for a while and just <laughs> see what actually happens. Um, but I got to repurpose a wee bit of that for um, a, a Radio 4 short story right at the beginning of lockdown about a plague of snails, so that was fun. Oh,
1: I'd take a plague of snails right now, I really would. That'd be, like that would <laughs> be your <a> <laughs> end of the year, I think. <laughs> Okay, so we've got some um, audience questions uh, just for our last 15 minutes or so. Ali K says, you mentioned how activism has changed. Do you think it is more or less effective in the age of social media? Would Cleo have tweeted, what would her handle be if so, or rebelled against the masses?
0: Oh, no, Cleo was on Twitter. She was definitely on Twitter, there there are are sections. Um, I did actually. I, I thought about putting Twitter transcriptions of Cleo's conversations in there, but no. Yeah, Cleo. Cleo was was on Twitter towards the end. Um, she probably would have just gone for a straightforward Cleo Campbell, I reckon. And um, maybe with whatever number of numbers were suggested to her, she would have just taken the suggested handle. I think. Um, and yeah, she was. It kind of gave rise to some of her her worst instincts. There's a there's a scene. Um, from Ruth, her friend, towards the end of her life's point of view, during the uh the independence re- Scottish independence referendum, um, where Cleo she, Ruth is kind of horror struck watching Cleo just fight and fight and fight on Twitter, um and seemingly keep getting knocked down and coming back for more of it. Um so yeah, Cleo, Cleo would have been very exhausting reactive on Twitter.
1: And do you think do you think social media has been a positive force or a negative force for activism generally? <laughs> social media is exhausting, isn't it? It's absolutely exhausting. Um, I mean,
0: it's great. And when when I was promoting my first book, Fishnet, which was about sex work and sex worker activists, um, the book was set from 2008 to 2011. And um I was I would kind of say a lot how the world changed a lot. So my sex worker characters blog, but now they would be active on Twitter um, and there's there's no you know as horrendous as Twitter can be and it is all the time. There's also something about the, the fact that it, it allows people who wouldn't have voices, voice and access um, and opinions getting out there. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it also makes it a lot... I I don't know. Oh, Twitter's awful. (laughs) That's that's all I'm kind of thinking. Yes, activism has probably changed for better and worse, um, irreparably, since since Twitter came along, I think.
1: It does foster connections in a way. And away from Twitter, I mean, I'm... 33 and a half now so there are platforms that i don't even know exist Mm. you know doing amazing things but even (laughs) somewhere like instagram has been so important for the black lives matter oh yeah absolutely
0: yeah that sharing of um yeah that sharing of kind of i saw somebody kind of scoffing at it the other day but i think really um shareable graphics on instagram um are are pretty that that put one point beautifully succinctly um, and kind of that that that's a really great thing um, for kind of getting people's points across to people who wouldn't necessarily access them. You know, something just pops up in your Instagram stories and immediately you're kind of thinking differently. You're seeing the world a bit differently, which is kind of what Twitter used to be like, I guess, a little bit. But, um, yeah.
1: I think we just need to change our Twitter settings so we don't see quite as much.
0: I actually did kind of shut down Twitter the whole time I was writing this book um, and my partner at the end and and tuned out of politics and then when my partner read it at the end he was like, oh, that's where you went.
1: Um. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we've got a question from Craig who says, what are your musical influences? And this ties into something I also wanted to ask you about how you moved so effortlessly through so many different eras in the book and you brought in so many different cultural trends and goings on. So how was that? And what are your influences? My musical influences for the book?
0: Um, Yeah, I, um, uh, well, I I made, um, I've got a Spotify playlist. I'll put that up on Twitter afterwards and on my website and stuff so people can listen to it if you want. Um, There's a Spotify playlist of songs that kind of informed what I was thinking. Cleo's Big Hit. Um, rise Up. I have not written it. I've not written the lyrics. I I, um, I think sometimes lyrics look a bit naff if you see them written down without knowing what the chain is. In my head, it was somewhere between Patty Smith's People Got Power, um Nina's 99 Red Balloons and Aztec Camera's Good Morning Britain. Um for each section of the book I was trying to listen to music that Cleo might have been listening to at the time as well. Um yeah, um and when I realised that there, there's a sort of there's a Robert Burns kind of influence running through they're both working class kids from Ayrshire who went on to do big things and died young Cleo and, and Robert Burns and um, yeah there's there's he sort of haunts the book a wee bit she does a, a cover of his, his work at one point point. Um, and I realised that she would be living in London at the time that um grime was really starting up and I thought that would probably actually really appeal to her that sort of music um and so I got really really into quite a bit of um early naughty's grime for a while as well while I was while I was writing it um yeah I've, I've, I just took long long walks in the woods with a baby and, and a carrier and um just different playlists in my in my ears each day and kind of Little curlicues would kind of come off there, but yeah, it's um, it's a it's a diverse one. There's also quite a bit of Britpop in there, which was my kind of musical apprenticeship as a teenager, for better or worse. So
1: yeah, was it the music that you allowed you to get into those eras? I imagine it was an enormous amount of research around trends and cultural things like that. Yeah, yeah, a bit the music,
0: and I also I made Pinterest boards for each um, kind of era particularly the um the squats and the the mining the, the minor strike sections um I was really looking at kind of video footage anything I could find um grainy pictures just to see what people were wearing kind of what sort of rooms people were in because I, I always feel like you've got to for me I was like just describing the room around somebody I think that's quite a good way of getting into that person's head and and also kind of centering your reader kind of giving them the, the pointers for where they are um, especially in a book that jumps around so yeah I, I kind of pulled a lot of that together as well.
1: Um, we've got a excellent question here from Sophia B she says would you consider Clio to be a bad feminist um, a term coined by Roxanne Gay? Mm,
0: yeah. Um, yeah yeah I would um.
1: <laughs> but in a kind of
0: she wouldn't consider herself to be a bad feminist um but you know that yeah that's a really good one yes i would i would um, i'm not sure that i would kind of be able to expand too much on that but um yes yes she is
1: i guess it asks the question is there such thing as a good feminist then and what does that look like and do we hold women to standards that we don't hold other people to in that regard
0: mm. yeah well it, i guess um the, the 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 paragraph after that that section that I just read um, the lipstick section um, that is kind of very much the question where um, Xanthe who is a um, she's a very kind of uh, she goes down various quite kind of intense feminist routes she eventually moves from the the squat into a women only commune for a while um, she's kind of uh kind of really having a go at Cleo for wearing any sort of makeup whatsoever and um yeah that that kind of do you know what I just kind of wish we would all stop ripping each other to shreds and concentrate on ripping down the patriarchy instead that would be great
1: (laughs) (laughs) that can be the quote from the uh, (laughs) from the event that would be great thumbs up put the thumbs up in there as well Um, okay, Ken J asks, you said you avoided future casting ahead of publication, but I'm curious to know how you think Cleo would be reacting to this tumultuous year of 2020.
0: It would be exhausting. She would be absolutely exhausting. I was I was thinking, somebody asked me this recently in a, an interview that I've, I've just been writing through, so I've been thinking about this. I can't tell whether she would be, you know, 100%... Um, up there, masked up at the Black Lives Matter protests, um, you know, condemning the the government with all of her being, or whether she would have gone full on 5G conspiracy theory, they're trying to control us, um, tinfoil hat wearing. I I genuinely, I flip around on this a couple of times a day at the moment, Um, just while I've been trying to do this Q&A interview, Um, so yeah, I don't know. Oh, what do you think? Would
1: you reckon, Heather? It's so hard to tell, isn't it? Because I think all of us, we are reacting in ways that we couldn't have imagined according yeah. to our particular circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you write about how Cleo has uh, depression throughout her life as well. And mm-hmm. a thing we haven't really talked about is her interpersonal relationships with her family and all these kinds of things. So I like to think that she would be at the forefront. Yeah. Um, I think she would.
0: Yeah yeah let's let's say that
1: (laughs) um we've kind of answered this a little bit about your writing in lockdown but um craig asks about your next big project and what that might be
0: um well i am currently working on a play for the national theatre of scotland it is the least covid friendly play ever it's um it's about Scottish country dancing. And my idea was that all the, um, the audience members would sit together on benches like they were at school and have to do the dances with complete strangers. Um, yeah, that, that, I don't see that happening in the near future, but it's centered around that and about um, Miss Jean Milligan, who is a very kind of a real life um, Miss Jean Brodie character, who's the, the woman who kind of saved Scottish country dancing after World War I. And um, uh, she was another fascinating, charismatic, dictatorial and unlikable um, character. She's very different from Cleo in the circumstances of her life, but I've been reading her work for quite a while and I think she probably fed into my characterization of Cleo. I've been mulling this project over for about 10 years. Um, Yeah, so it's sort of part biographical, part dancing. there's one scene where Robert Burns is chatting up Mary Queen of Scots, um, you know, it'll probably be on in about 10 years. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but yeah, that's the, the idea for that is that it's going to be quite a big piece. Um, I'm working with the director, Justin Martin, um, on it, and he did um, The Jungle, The Calais Jungle play. Um, and I'm really excited about the way that he is not really interested in sort of traditional proscenium arts staging either. So. Yeah, we've, we've got some workshop time on that in November. I'm working on the second draft of that just now.
1: And do you have a big novel in your head? You said you've been, you know- you Yeah, yeah, the apocalypse,
0: the apocalypse one. I think I'm gonna wait until, um, let's just see how things how things drift down. It was originally, um, I, I did my elevator pitch to my agent and um, I said it's a uh, postnatal depression and Pokemon Go at the end of the world, um, so. It might still be
1: that. (laughs) Who could say no? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And just to end on, Kirsten, can you tell us about who inspires you today? Um, Who is, you know, incredible in your mind, pushing things forward? Who's that character? um, What, like a... A real person, sorry. (laughs) A real person. (laughs) Um, uh,
0: Bernadine Iberisto has been... do Do you know what I've really... I, I read Girl Woman Other last year and um, I've just, I've been so impressed by how she has used that, she's the very opposite of pulling up the ladder behind her. She is using her voice to make sure that black women writers are being heard everywhere. Um, you know, she's she's kind of single-handedly almost um, kind of taking the publishing industry to to task and really kind of, yeah, get getting getting those those words out there. Um, yeah. Um, who inspires me? Janelle, Janelle Monet, as well. Um, I just I like everything about her. I like everything that she does, and everything that she comes out with, and everything that she creates and thinks and says. Um, those are yeah, those are my two kind of current big
1: big heroes, I guess. Um, uh, yeah. So maybe Not, we'll get a Janelle Monet inspired novel in a decade. I know, I would love to read that, to be honest. Yeah,
0: I don't know if I'm the person to write it, but oh, that would be a wonderful thing to
1: read. If someone out there wants to write that novel, please do. (laughs) Kirsten, it's been a uh, treat to explore Cleo's character and life with you, and um, I really would recommend to everyone to read Scabby Queen. There's a reason that it's, you know, jumped into people's lives so much. uh, It resonates so much with people, and it says so much for us. As we live today. So, I really recommend buying it from the Edinburgh Book Festival shop. Little plug, uh, that's fine. I to sign it with oh, yeah, Kirsten's going um, <laughs> to sign some books virtually, which is a whole new technological world. Um, you can also donate. If, like me, you've been uh, enjoying all these events at the Book Festival this year, you can actually donate. I'm going to do this because I believe there's some sort of button under the screen. Um, but, yeah, thank you so much, Kirsten. It's been a, a real pleasure. And we'll um, see you very soon.
0: Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch a selection of our
1: events in full on our website and YouTube channel.